The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Against Much Praying, Chalcedon Position Paper Number 91 One of the familiar and very much neglected comments by our Lord has to do with prayer. We are commanded to pray, and to pray quietly, without ostentation, and, quote, in secret, unquote. In example, not to publicize our praying. Quote, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they shall be heard by their much speaking. Unquote. Matthew 6, 7 Note that repetitions are not forbidden, but vain repetitions are. The widow in our Lord's parable was much given to intense repetition. Quote, Avenge me of my adversary. Unquote. But it was not vain repetition, but rather a repeated and passionate prayer for justice. Luke eighteen one through eight. He condemns quote, much speaking unquote, or praying, which has as its purpose a desire to impress God. This is especially a great temptation in our time. We live in what some call the democratic age. Even tyrannies function in the name of the people. They hold mock elections in which everyone must vote, even though all candidates run unopposed, as in the Soviet Union. The people must all favor what has been predetermined for them. Even the Soviet Communist Party leaders, who know that the elections are a formality, go through the sanctimonious ritual of voting. It is a religious duty for the people to express their common will. 
Given this mentality, now more than ever, people are impressed by numbers. More than a few organizations add thousands of worthless names to their mailing list because prospective donors are influenced by numbers. In the years just after World War II, a very fine Christian layman began a small organization to stem the modernism then arising in his church. The quote, fellowship, unquote, was remarkably effective in its early years. Then some members agitated for an increased membership. The founder insisted on a maximum of 50 members. Most insisted on thousands in order to make an impact. Those favoring a large membership won out, and, before long, the association was a model of impotence. Its stance had been compromised, its publication became moderate and conventional, and it was incapable of decisiveness. The demand for numerical strength continues unabated despite a world filled with examples of failures. Even worse, this mindset has infected prayer. The assumption is that if we can get one million people, or even 10,000, praying zealously for something, God will give it to us. The assumption is that God is guided, not by His knowledge and wisdom, but by our nagging. The results are tragically evil. Devout Protestants who view the medieval endowments for continuous prayers by monks and nuns with horror now create, quote, prayer towers, unquote, where for 24 hours daily a number of people are gathered to pray for all prayer requests. One evangelist on television has said that as many as 35,000 people have tried to call his, quote, 800, unquote, number in a single hour. Somehow, people believe that God will hear them more readily if 500 or 5,000 people are praying for them. What happened to the priesthood of all believers? Must a professional praying person pray for us before God hears us? A good many years ago, a sick man asked me to pray for him. I knew the man well and that he was afraid of death and admitted it. I told him to do his own praying and to begin by confessing his very serious sins. He refused. He wanted healing, not communion with God. Today, however, certain electronic ministries stress strongly their prayer ministries for people. They invite people to call in and they speak of the large number of people manning telephones, or should I say womaning telephones, to hear our prayer request and to pray for us. One young pastor recently was left feeling very uncomfortable when someone demanded to know whether or not the church had a prayer ministry. Perhaps very soon we may have churches with blinking neon signs advertising 24-hour prayer ministries with no waiting. Now, St. Paul tells us that, quote, we are members one of another, unquote, Ephesians 4:25. We pray for our family members, our friends, and our fellow church members out of love and concern. Here at Chalcedon, we thank God for our supporters. We have come to know many of you and pray for you when we know of your problems. But do we have a department of prayer or a formal prayer ministry? No. Much speaking carries no weight with God. Moreover, all too often prayer ministries concern themselves with personal wants, not the kingdom of God. How many of those prayer ministry or prayer tower groups are concerned about persecuted Christians in the Soviet's power? 
or with American parents persecuted in the courts for homeschooling and or for sending their children to a Christian school. Even more, how many concern themselves with God's kingdom and justice? Yet our Lord tells us in Matthew 6.33, quote, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, unquote, or justice. Or not unending, quote, gimme, unquote, prayers insulting to God. Do they not become more insulting when we line up great numbers of people to nag God? Our Lord gives us his model of prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, declaring, quote, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, unquote. We are to begin by hallowing his name. Our paramount request must be, quote, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, unquote. God wants his kingdom to rule and reign as fully on earth as in heaven. And we have a duty to pray for this and to work for it. He has given us the laws of his kingdom, and we must obey and apply them. As we are faithful, so he too is faithful. He will give us our daily bread, and he forgives our debts, quote, as we forgive our debtors, unquote. Prayer has as its companion obedience and action. The focus of prayer is wrong if it is our needs primarily rather than God's kingdom. If we pray essentially for ourselves rather than God's kingdom, it will not make our prayer more effective to have 500 people unite with us in saying that, quote, my will must be done, unquote. In Second Chronicles 7.14, God declares to Solomon, quote, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land, unquote. The priority in prayer is clearly not our wants, but God's will. Let us look again at our Lord's words in Matthew 6, 7. Quote, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Unquote. Clearly, our Lord is warning us against the pagan forms of prayer. E.N. Fales in James Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics defined, quote, primitive, unquote, prayer in these words, quote, in its simplest and most primitive form, Prayer is the expression of a desire cast in the form of a request to influence some force or power conceived as supernatural. Unquote. Volume 10, page 154. The word, quote, influence, unquote, tells us all. This is, quote, heathen, unquote, or pagan prayer, a belief that God can be influenced. This is not Christian prayer. We enter into communion with God through Christ in order to find our place in His will and kingdom and to receive His blessings. Too commonly, the fostering of mass prayers is to compel God's attention and to influence Him by numbers. This is paganism. Our Lord identifies another aspect of, quote, heathen, unquote, prayer. Quote, vain repetition, unquote. The pagans, quote, vain repetition, unquote, was associated with magic. Certain repeated incantations could influence and command the spirits or gods. The, quote, heathen, unquote, prayers our Lord refers to were really more spells, magical formulae, than prayers. They were seen as magical words of power 
and they would have more power if certain persons repeated them for us, shamans, medicine men, and the like. In some instances, these spells had to be repeated at various hours of the day to be effective, and this is what our Lord also meant by, quote, vain repetition, unquote. The goal of such pagan, quote, vain repetition, unquote, was to control a supernatural power by exercising and commanding a greater power. In 1 Kings 18, we have a classic example of pagan, quote, prayer, unquote. The priest of Baal sought to control the powers over earth by numbers, by shouting, quote, vain repetitions, unquote, and by mutilating themselves. Perhaps at the same time as this was happening at Mount Carmel, all the priests of Baal at the various sanctuaries may have been using, quote, vain repetitions, unquote, to help the priest at Mount Carmel. Against all this, as James notes, quote, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, unquote. James 5.15 Elijah's concern was God's kingdom and God's justice. It is worthy of note that paganism usually has had a specialized, quote, praying, unquote, class. To have influence with or control over the forces of nature or the spirits, an expert technician had to be used. Among some American Indians, for example, Communion with the spirits was an elitist fact, reserved to the limited number of members of a secret society. Such a power made them sometimes feared because of the damage it was believed they could do using the spirits. More, quote, advanced, unquote, religions in antiquity had rituals and prayers which often are quite remarkable. They seem at times close to a biblical emphasis. They stress penitence, a strong moral sense, and a desire for communion with the gods. There is, however, a significant difference between all such pagan rituals and prayers and scripture. The stress in these, quote, advanced, unquote, pagan religions is on self-reformation and self-commendation. The, quote, worshiper, unquote, presents himself as one who has repented and reformed himself, and he then proceeds with, quote, vain repetitions, unquote, to nag the god or gods for acceptance and for his petitions. The stress is on the human initiative, the self-reformation, and the self-qualification. The man says, I am here, O God, ready to receive. How can you refuse me, and why do you? In Egyptian religion, the worshiper presented himself to the gods after death with a litany of self-praise and with a recital of all his virtues. This was the, quote, heathen, unquote, model against which our Lord warns us. It was present all around him. And it is all around us today, and sometimes in us. This is why the Lord's Prayer is so important for us to use. It teaches us the true perspective in prayer. We dare not use the Lord's name in pagan prayers. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is biblical. It rests on the premise that believers are members of God's covenant and family and therefore in faithfulness to their Lord and in communion with Him. Prayer or communion is thus a common privilege of all Christians and of all who seek God's face in repentance and faith. November 1987 False Morality and False Reform Chalcedon Position Paper Number 92 
One of our persistent problems today is that so much, quote, reform, unquote, approved by Christians and non-Christians and liberals as well as conservatives is simply immoral. An example of such a false perspective is an article in the October 1987 Reader's Digest condensed from the Wall Street Journal, Patricia Bellew Gray's, quote, tobacco goes on trial, unquote. Before someone decides to condemn me as an apologist for the tobacco companies, I shall make two things clear. First, I am not a smoker. I have never even tried it, and I see it as a foolish habit. Second, the tobacco industry does not have a good record as a moral concern. During World War I, a major tobacco corporation worked hard to protect an enemy country, Turkey, because of its contracts for Turkish tobacco. Its sympathies and efforts were not with the massacred Christians, but with its Turkish partner in business. The point of Mrs. Gray's article is that people dying, apparently of tobacco-induced lung cancer, or their families, are suing the tobacco industry for failure over the years to alert users of the dangers in smoking. The defense of the tobacco industry in the legal battles is described as, quote, a lavishly financed and brutally aggressive defense that scares off or exhausts many plaintiffs long before their cases even get to trial, unquote. So far, the industry has not lost, but Mrs. Gray has high hopes because of two new cases in Mississippi and New Jersey. Let us begin by granting the medical case against smoking. It is a dangerous and even suicidal habit. But are the companies liable? Were people ignorant of the dangers of smoking before the warning notices were placed on cigarette packages? Is knowledge of tobacco's threat to health something new? I am now 71 years old. I cannot recall a time when the menace was not clearly known. In the 19th century and well into the Depression years of the 1930s, cigarettes were known popularly as, quote, coffin nails, unquote. Hygiene classes, athletic coaches, and other authorities regularly warned the young of the dangers of smoking. I was quite young when a Dr. Pearl studied insurance statistics and demonstrated that smokers died earlier than non-smokers. The young who started to smoke were warned, quote, it will stunt your growth, unquote, quote, it will kill you, unquote, and so on. It was impossible for anyone to grow up without endless naggings and warnings about smoking. The young would begin smoking as an act of bravado, or to act sophisticated, or out of sheer defiance. In my hometown, because the scoutmaster bore down heavily against smoking, all the scouts would leave the meeting to light up cigarettes in gleeful defiance. It was their way of thumbing their noses at authority. Now, if we say that tobacco companies are then responsible, we deny all godly morality and we give the right to those who defy well-known facts of health to blame others for their condition. Will farmers be sued next because people who overeat have health problems? We can be grateful that there was no American courts and judges in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve might then have sued God for creating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and also for creating the tempter who tempted them. After all, Eve did blame the tempter, and Adam blamed Eve, and he also blamed God for having given him Eve. The suits against the tobacco industry follow the same pattern. They turn the moral universe upside down. 
They deny the facts of sin and responsibility. Given this type of lawsuit, what shall we expect next? Will we have suits against call girls and other prostitutes for having given a customer a sexually transmitted disease? In Concord, California, an anti-war protest group in violation of the law of trespass moved in front of a train with munitions, then leaving the Concord Naval Station. One man was hit and lost both legs below the knee. The protesters wanted news and television coverage and had notified the media. They expected to be removed, arrested, and to be on the evening news. After the accident, created by their trespass, they were outraged that no charge was filed against the crew of the train. The Stockton, California Record, Thursday, September 24, 1987, page B2. Protesters of various kinds have routinely destroyed and harmed individuals as their fundamental right, but they regard it as, quote, oppression, unquote, if any consequences affect them. Whether we are anti-war or anti-tobacco, the moral fact remains the same. When we knowingly do something, we must be prepared to accept the consequences. We cannot shift the blame onto others. To do so is sin. No matter how just or righteous our cause may be, it cannot justify sinning on our part. If you are struggling for breath because of lung cancer, it is because you did wrong. No one forced you to smoke. When you sue the tobacco industry for your own stupidity, then you really do wrong before God. You deny your own responsibility, and you blame others for what you have done. The fact that the tobacco industry is not a model of Sunday school deportment does not alter the fact that you are wrong. The other person's sins can never justify your crimes. The suits against the tobacco industry should not surprise us. They are a part of the spirit of an apostate age. Adam and Eve both denied their guilt. They insisted that they were victims. This is the stance of ungodly man. His sin is not his responsibility, but a consequence of the environment. Somebody or something else is blamed. Quote, the devil made me do it. Unquote. This evasion of responsibility is basic to sinners. In a society of sinners, this means that guilt must be located elsewhere. Criminals have learned the language of psychiatry. They, quote, explain, unquote, their offenses by calling attention to their, quote, bad, unquote, homes, which is often a lie. Child molesters insist that they were themselves molested as children, and we are supposed to feel sympathetic and understanding as a result. Back in the 1950s, I found instances where even children under 10 years of age were excusing their conduct with terminology coming from psychologists. All the excuses are there. So now we accept them, treat parents, capitalism, society, the church, and other agencies as guilty. The offenders are seen as victims. Thus far, the tobacco industry has won the cases, but the outlook is not good. Our society is more and more ungodly, and it bases its, quote, morality, unquote, on the rationalizations of the fall, not on God nor on His law word. Our laws increasingly reflect a bias against the biblical doctrine of sin and responsibility. We should not be surprised that Christianity is increasingly attacked 
as the evil in society and the sinner justified in his sin. We come now to the most deadly implications of this present temper. According to Scripture, God, through Christ's atonement, justifies the sinner. Christ takes our guilt and sin upon himself and dies in our stead. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us morally new men, new creations. Our justification costs Christ the cross because God's law is unchanging and sin requires judgment and restitution. Christ righted the legal and moral balance and makes us his responsible and righteous people. There is, however, a different doctrine of justification in these lawsuits and in much of our current, quote, reform, unquote, legislation. It justifies the sinner in his sin. According to the logic of this view, the tempter, rather than Adam and Eve, should have been at the least cast out of Eden, if not killed. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil should have been demoted and sued for creating the possibility of temptation and sin. Is this what you want? There are two moral realms in conflict, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. Beware lest in your foolish sympathies you align yourself against God. Incidentally, God created tobacco. One of these days when we approach it as God created, we may find a variety of healing uses in its composition which could amaze us. Remember, God made all things good. Genesis 1.32 Our misuse of things cannot alter that fact. December 1987 Note Daily News Digest, August 29, 1990 reported that the anti-war protester who lost both legs when he lay down before a munitions train has received a settlement for $920,000. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Oh
one God's only Son. Love, embrace Him and go. Oh, how precious Jesus is to us as the husband of the bride to be. His wrath, tell the world of His love, tell the world how Jesus Christ has set you free, set you free. He is the Lord of life to me. Tell the 